Okay, if you're new to this format, we're going through the uh, uh, biblical theological introduction to the New Testament. That means we're taking each book and we're looking at what the, the writers of those books, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to accomplish in those books. So we've got to take a look at who uh, each, for example, each author is, the date, some of the background, audience and purpose, structure and outline, and hopefully it'll be a little bit exciting for some of you, um, and you, you'll walk away having learned something and have something to ponder and consider. Um, this week, um, we are, uh, it's uh, Michael J. Kruger that is the author of the particular book that we are uh, using, uh, and this particular chapter of the book. Every different chapter has a different author that is bringing us through it. So let's take a look. You'll see here, by the way, um, let's do this real quick. I'm going to sign out some scripture. Um, red are the bolded scripture that we're going to uh, use today. Who wants to take that first red underneath background? It's in the top paragraph. Um, who would like to read those two verses there? Silva, are you good with that? All right. And then uh, uh, down at the bottom of the background section, you see two more verses, that both out of John, obviously. Um, who would like to take that? I saw a hand back. Perfect. Stephen, you've got that one. And then we'll flip over. So there's not a lot of reading today. Um, on the back side, you see message and theology, and you see two references there. Who would like to, to okay, we've got, I'm going to use Wayne for that one. And Jane, I'm actually going to ask you, above that, right above message and theology, I didn't put this in there, but I do want us to read it. Um, yours is going to be 21, 18 to 23. Okay? So it's not listed in there. It's just the whole section. You're going to have to write down 21, 18 to 23 is what we're going to go over. I'm going to show you something that's going on at the very end of John that makes sense why 1 John is of the tone it is. John is going to finish the, the, uh, the book of John, the Gospel of John, on a particular note and then all of a sudden you're going to see when he comes to 1 John, he's doing something, he's picking up where he left off. And, and um, I don't know if we've seen that before. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Uh, I'm going to do most of the reading and then I'll ask some questions along the way. So underneath the author, there are actually 23 different positions on the authorship of the Gospel of John. Are you kidding me? 23 different beliefs on who this author could be. Amazing. So let's take a look at this. Um, however, there are, good, there are good reasons to think that the dominant position of the early church, that the beloved disciple was John, the son of Zebedee, which is one of the, the uh, uh, disciples uh, that Jesus had that um, later becomes an, uh, an apostle, still has the, has the most to commend to it. So it's, I think it's clear that it's that, but let's take a look at some of the reasons on why John, the son of Zebedee, one of his disciples that was with him the whole time is, in fact, the author. Number one there, the beloved disciple is present at the Last Supper and thus presented as one of the apostles. Uh, and so he moved. So during the life of Christ, you have them listed as disciples. And then when Christ leaves, they become dis, uh, apostles. They take on that role. It's an authoritative role which the Holy Spirit is using them to take the gospel out and writing material down. So they have that that. Uh, standard that, uh, what am I going to put, the position of an apostle uh, particular to Jesus' 12 disciples. So we have to realize that. Sometimes you'll hear churches today that'll say, oh, this is, this is, rather than introducing you as my pastor or Brother Nick or something like that, they'll say, oh, this is Apostle Nick. That would be a very big red flag that there's a problem there. 
The apostles were only those designated by God through the, the 12 that he chose. And there's a little bit of Thomas uh, drops out, not Thomas, excuse me, uh, Judas, for his role as an apostle. He was selected in his role, and he fulfilled his role, which unfortunately was the role of betraying Jesus. But that was uh, known all along that that would happen. And so there was another uh, disciple that replaces him. And Pete has actually already preached on that in the book of Mark and what, how that took place. I just want to make sure we're clear on it. that should be a red flag. If somebody is being referred to in modern-day uh, 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 religions as an apostle, that should catch your attention. All right, that is bad, by the way. He is described as a witness, we're talking about John in, point, in bullet point two there, and as one present from the beginning, so he would know what's going on because he actually was an eyewitness to what's going on. He is often in the company of Peter, which is part of the inner circle of three, so he would uh, more so know, uh, have the inner workings of, of what Jesus was teaching. And then we have John, number four there, John, the son of Zebedee, one of the most prominent disciples, is never named. And if he is not the, the beloved disciple, then where is he? He never is named in the gospel of John because he is a man of humility. And he doesn't name himself. All the other disciples get named, which is a clue that, oh, so who's the one missing? Oh, that's the author. He refers to him as the one that, was, that, that Jesus talks to like at the, the Last Supper and whatnot. He leans over against and whatnot. He is referred to as the beloved one or the beloved disciple. But he doesn't even give himself, he doesn't name himself, which is really a statement, again, of, of his humility. So let's take a look at the date. The gospel was written in the, in the 80s or early A.D. 90s after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So you have Jesus dying around A.D. 30. Some will, will, will say it's A.D. 31, 2, or 3. As long as you get in your mind, it's, it's the beginning of uh, the third century. And then you have this, the, the gospels being written. The last gospel written is John's. And all the other three gospels are predate the destruction of the temple. The Jewish temple is destroyed. It, Jesus predicted, and then it's all borne out in the other three uh, gospels, but that was, he predicted, he, for, he foreshadowed, he said this was going to ha happen. It's, it was prophetic that uh, he knew that he is the son of God. And, but in John's, you have a different perspective. If this is before the event and the pulpit is the event, John is looking back at the event and trying to make sense of it to the people, to, particularly to the Jews. Why was the temple destroyed is, he's, is what he's trying to, to answer, which is fascinating because you may not have ever thought, really, that's one of the, uh, a main point, a main theme in John? Yeah, it is. And we're going to see that borne out. So let's look at the background. The destruction of the temple would have been a mo monumental event for both Jews, Jew and Jewish Christians, raising the inevitable question of the relationship between Jesus and the temple. Why does this temple disappear? How come it disappears after Jesus' death? What's going on here? Why, what, what's, what's the theological um, uh, meaning of this? When we look at the Gospel of John, we see that it answers this very question by describing Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jerusalem temple. So, um, Selva, I think it's you that's reading for, uh, John 1.14 and John 2.13-22. And if you want to follow along on the, particularly the longer version, that would be helpful for folks. Go ahead. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
All right, let me pause you right there. Sorry about that. Sometimes I jump in rudely, and I'm, this is one of my rudely jumping in scenes. So when the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, what, and Mark, where are you? Where do I have, there he is. Because I'm going to ask if anybody, I want, to, want us thinking, what was the purpose of the temple as it relates to God? God's relationship to us. What, what, what is the temple represent, if you can think about that? Maybe I'm, I'm being too global in my question. What is it, I might need to help. What does it relate, what does it mean as it relates to God's presence? What is the temple, what's the significance of the temple as it relates to God's presence? That's where God dwelled. Boom. That's where God dwells. So then when they wanted to engage with God and the means by which they were called by God to engage, they would come to the temple and they would, uh, uh, there was, oftentimes they were, uh, there was involvement of sacrificing, there's petitions of prayers, there's means of engaging with God. The sacrificing was to pay for their sins by the, through the, uh, the blood of, of, of bulls and goats, the, the blood of animals being a symbol that something needed to die in your place for your sin. So something outside of you need to make, needed to make payment for your sin and my sin. And that's why it's leading us into understanding, oh, that's why Jesus had to die. He wasn't a mistake. The Jews didn't just catch him. He wasn't a slow runner and tried to outrun him. No, no, that was all part of the plan. That's all the purpose. He needed to die a, a death for us, a, a, an atoning death. So we see that the temple represents the presence. Well, we just read the way John worded that, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is Christ Jesus. He dwelt, the, the actual word for dwelt in, there in the Greek, it, if I said it literally, it would say, and the word tabernacled. Isn't that fascinating? That, that would be a clue for the Jewish people. Anybody who spoke Greek that, oh, there's a, there's a connection right back to the temple. This Jesus has some connection to this temple. We see at 114. Okay, as, as, particularly as it relates to his presence. All right, so now let's read 2, 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the, who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Real quick, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to get rude again. Um, he's, they're asking for signs. What signs are you going to show that you have the authority to do this? You came in here, you called it your father's house, and, and you're, 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 you're taking action where we don't see you have authority. It's their, their challenge, they want to know what authority, and so he's giving them the authority. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That would have been confusing for them. Let's continue. He's going to, John's going to help us out on this. Then the Jews then said, 
it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he, has, he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All right, let me just put it in this, in this way. He's speaking to it as his body as being the temple, and he's, re- he's pointing to the, resurre- excuse me, to, the, to the fact that he's going to be crucified and he's going to be resurrected. Um, if we understand the temple, as Julia said, as the presence of Christ or the presence of God, and now Jesus is referring to his body, if you want to be in the presence of God, you're in the presence of Jesus. He's making that connection, helping the Jews to see that the presence has shifted from a place to a person who has taken flesh. He is God incarnate, and he, does, he doesn't want the Jews to miss that. So, um, real quick, we use sometimes churchy words or, or theological words that we really don't know what it means. Does anybody know when we reference that the the first three Gospels are synoptic Gospels, and John is not a synoptic Gospel. Does anybody have an idea what synoptic means? Somebody, I, if, I, for a long time, just kind of faked it. Well, I think it means this. I kind of think it means that. The way people say it, it must mean this. Does anybody really know what it means? Anybody? Pete, when you, let's get Pete the mic. Um, I'm going to put him on the spot. When you were a police officer, did you have to start all your, your reports with yes. a... <laughs> I'm acting like a defensive attorney, giving him a leading synopsis. question, and he beats me to the end. Synopsis. Um, yeah. So, uh, so a synopsis is what? What does it do? It's a, it's a brief uh, uh, recap of the events. Of the events. And you tell this. So if, in order for a prosecutor to care enough to read the, the rest of your report that you wrote as a police officer, if I could brief so <laughs> open, um, you need to catch them. You need to put in here, this is, the, this is what I'm about to tell you. And then you would put a small paragraph up front on every report that went to the prosecutor's office to say, this is the, what took place. And you'd give a short chronological account of what took place. And so the, the prosecutor goes, okay, I got an idea of what's going on. Now let me read it. Well, the synoptic gospels, the first three, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all work in that chronological fashion, only they're telling the life of Jesus in a small book, not a paragraph, like, you know, take a report and put it in a paragraph. So now you've got an idea, oh, okay, so the synoptic gospels are taking the life and putting it in pretty much chronological order. Um, so when you get to John, it's not one of the, the synoptic gospels, only the first three. So what, is that, what should that tell you, Mark? I'm going to let somebody answer this. What should be different about John's gospel if it's not a synoptic gospel? I've got to get you guys more coffee or warm you up or something. Uh, go ahead, Jamie. At the very least, it's going to be a different view. A different view, good. Um, and it's, what about the chronology? What can we ex- expect to see occasionally regarding the chron- chronology? Go Not ahead, chronological. 
It's not chronological. There are times he's going to step out of it. So we just read the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. The other three Gospels, which are synoptic, put that on the end of Jesus' life before he gets crucified. John's got it here. And so you have to realize, oh, John must be teaching something theological. He needs to grab that event out of time and put it right here to start making a point. We, we already saw in, in chapter 1 he was starting to deal with the temple, the understanding that Jesus is now the temple. He's the presence of God. So now he's going to deal more with the temple in chapter 2 to explain, yeah, you guys have them totally abused the temple. You got it all wrong. You see it as a place to make the, and, and do money transactions. This is a sacred place to meet God. So that's why he puts it in the front. So don't, you don't have to look at it and go, well, I don't think that the Bible's legit. I mean, they, it gets things all confusing. It's all whack. It doesn't line up. Well, you got to know what book you're in and what's going on with it. So John is not synoptic. He's more interested in themes and grabbing stories to, to, to explain themes and theology. Got it? Wonderful. All right, let's keep, keep going on here. Um, I'm going to read right after the, bullet, the, three, or the two red uh, uh, scriptures that were highlighted there. Whereas the synoptic gospels record Jesus' vivid predictions of the temple destruction, we see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John focuses on the theological implications of that destruction, namely that Jesus is the embodiment of all that the temple was intended to be. No doubt, this is why John places the story of Jesus' cleansing the temple at the beginning of the gospel, whereas it occurs at the end of the synoptics. The redemptive hyphen historical perspective on Jesus as the new temple fits quite well with the end of the first century, 80s or 90s. In other words, with him writing in that time frame. When Jews and Jewish Christians would have been reflecting upon the meaning of, of AD 70, the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So they're trying to figure out, last time this, this temple got sacked, it meant exile for the people of God in the Old Testament. Now this, this temple gets sacked, it gets torn down, and what does that mean for me as a Jew? And so as a Jew, it, they might be taking it from the, does this mean exile? Are we going to get you know, brought into another country again? Are we going to be dispersed over the earth again? As a Jewish Christian, you're going, and John is starting to lay this out, you're like, oh, this is a transition. Jesus really was the person of God, the Son of God, here to fulfill that which would bring me back into a, a reconciled relationship with God. I don't need to worship at a temple, per se. I, I need to recognize that Jesus is the temple. I can have that presence of God through prayer, even. Now, we, there's different means. We're still called as a church to come together corporately once a week. But individually, we step into the presence of God when we are starting to direct our prayers upward to God because Jesus has made that possible. And we always end our prayers in the name of Jesus, the one who has made it possible, because we stand in his presence, who stands in God's presence, if you will. A little bit of a clunky theology there, but I'm trying to help you get, create some linkage there. Okay, so let's continue on. The, look at the underlined word there. The implication of Jesus now being the greater temple. Drawing near to God no longer requires an earthly location. Whoever has that, uh, read John 4.21. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So she, he's at the, the woman on the well, and he, she's a Samaritan. A Samaritan is somebody who is um, deluded in their, their ethnicity of being a Jew. They were, they were there. They were left behind at the exile because they were the poor and the weak. And then they brought peoples in, and they intermarried with these, these people. And so their, their bloodline is even further weakened. And so the Jews that are a pure ethnicity look at them as half-breeds or less. They see them as not being true Jews. And there's this battle. And so you have this, oh, the Samaritans in, in the Jewish mindset. And so he's talking to this Jew, Jewish woman. And she says, well, we have this mountain to worship on. See, we're still legitimate. We have this mountain as part of our history as Jews. And he's saying, he's trying to say to her, it's not a place anymore. You don't go to the mountain to be with God. It's me, the person. He's trying to get that, that foundation laid there. So let's continue on. So let me, Jane, let me, uh, or whoever it was, uh, Stephen, let me read again so we can prep him for this. Uh, you reading 14.6. Drawing near to God no longer requires an earthly location, but a relationship with Jesus. 14.6. Go ahead and read it. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No presence. You cannot be in the presence of God the Father unless you come through the understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. We have to understand that, that that is the precedence that God set up with his atoning work for us. But in understanding that, because of that, we now can come into the presence of God because of the work accomplished by Jesus Christ. So now let's take a look at the audience. And I'm going to, the audience of purpose, I've got green highlighted, and I'm sorry, on the computer it shows a lot brighter uh, more transparent green, it might be a little bit difficult for you to read. But those are the questions I'm going to ask you because we've been learning through PJ and Pete and Mark and myself. You've been learning some hermeneutics, some ways to use your, what you've been given as far as what the Bible teaches on how it, it interprets itself. We keep going over them so that I want to see if you're applying that so you can get the right answers. So let's, let me read to you this. It says this under audience and purpose. John directs this book to a Jewish audience, and then he's going to quote from uh, John 20, 31. Uh, and in dealing with the purpose, he, he, John is very gracious. He gives us. He actually writes what the purpose is. Sometimes as a theolo we have to look at these books as a theologian and try and understand what, what's the, what would we say the purpose of this book. And sometimes when you outline a book, you kind of get an idea, oh, I see, can follow a pattern. I think I know what the, the particular purpose or the overarching purpose is of a book. John doesn't want anybody to get confused. John's just going to tell it to us. I like John that way. You, don't have, you can't get it wrong with John. So let's take a look what John says. Now, Jesus did many other signs. What did we say? I taught about this when we were going through the, the New Testament. How are signs used by God? When a sign is a, particularly a, a, a miraculous event demonstrating a divine uh, interaction with the physical world that you wouldn't normally get in the physical world. What do, what is, why are they used? When are they used? What's the overarching purpose of their use? Anybody? And if it's been a while, I understand that. I'll just give it to you. God gives signs in an overarching understanding of progressing his plan of salvation. Signs are not just random. Whenever a sign occurs, he's advancing 
his plan of salvation. Oftentimes, he's making sure that you know Jesus uses signs. It validates, this one's from me. You people can't do this. You're human. This one is from me. He's mine. He's my messenger. It could, and certainly we see that as an earthly messenger with the apostles. They do miracles and signs to show they're, they're the real. We have a saying in America that probably doesn't carry in, in, in India or, or some of the other in Nigeria. It's called the real McCoy or the, the real thing. They're, a better way to say it is that they're it. They're, they're what they are doing as far as communicating about God is accurate because they're able to do the things of God. So the sign, so you go, oh, I got to listen to him because he's going to advance the plan of salvation. So that's what signs are meant to do in the Bible. Okay, so now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so, and so is a purpose statement in this case. So what? Well, here we, he's going to tell us that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Well, that sometimes think people, I used to think as a young Christian that Jesus Christ was his name, meaning that Christ was like a last name. It's like part of his or middle name or something. No, no, no. Jesus is his human name that he has. Christ is a title. So what does it mean? Notice in the blue, it means anointed one, or it can be also mean Messiah. The Jews would have thought of it in the context of the greatest event in Jewish history, which was the Exodus. They were delivered out of slavery by the Egyptians. So they would see him as the to say the Christ would be the deliverer. They still think the Christ is coming, Jews do, at this time when Jesus shows up, that the Christ is going to come and deliver them out of weakness and turn them into a superpower, like in the, the days of the United Kingdom. They don't realize that Christ is coming the first time to deliver them from the bondage of sin, of being under the control of sin. Sin would separate you from the presence of God. First, Jesus has to come make it right so we can come in the presence of God. Then he comes back as the ruling, reigning, and even warring king when he comes back the second time. So we, we are still, we're in a place now, the church, that we're waiting for God, to, for Jesus to come back. He'll come back, not as a suffering servant, that it will die for us. He'll come back as the victorious king who will separate out the wheat from the tare, the, goat, the goats from the sheep. He will separate out those that do not believe him, are not part of his kingdom, from those that are part of his kingdom, and he will judge according to which kingdom you're in. Okay, let's continue on. Uh, so we have, uh, let's see, that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Son of God, hugely important, and that by, tell, by believing you may have life. To what life is he speaking? Eternal is a good word. Think of, uh, what's another word we might use? Spiritual. spiritual. Spiritual and eternal are both, uh, uh, it's not conflation, it's not wrong to put those together. Both of those are, be, are understood in this idea of life. It's, it's eternal. We can never die, meaning that certainly we die physically, but in a sense of dying and being out of the presence of God, we never die. We will be given glorified bodies at one time upon Christ's return, but we will be in his immediate presence um, so we have that, but you see the spiritual component of that. It's eternal life. It's, a, it's life made possible to be in the presence of God for eternity because of the, the things that Christ has done. Christ, who is now ruling and reigning from heaven, has done. Christ, who is, who is a, a, 
spiritual in essence as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are initially, but we see the Son take on flesh. Doesn't make him any less God, but he took on, only the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh. So we want to make sure that we understand that he's talking about spiritual, eternal, eternal life. And then I, I taught recently from the second commandment, third commandment, sorry about that. Thou shalt, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Only we learned what the name meant, and it didn't mean a cuss word. And we learned that in our sermon. So what does, when you reference the name of God, what does the totality of what it, what's being referred to when you use the name of God? His, his image, that would be, or, or another way to say it, the image of everything he is. All of his attributes, his character traits. So when you take the name, it's not an incantation. You're not just, you're not just cussing, and, and, and therefore it's just a spoken thing. It's some formula, like, like you've done something wrong if, you, if, you, if you've spoken X. No, it's the idea that when you take his name in vain, that you are, you are living out the name of God in less than what the image of God was, was communicated to be through the person of Jesus Christ. You can look at Christ and say, if I'm not living like him, if I'm not modeling these truths, this love, this way of inter interacting with human beings and with Jesus, then I'm not care, excuse me, with God the Father, then I'm not carrying, is the word, the, 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 uh, I'm not carrying his name in a worthy manner. It's less than what it is. It should be. As, as long as when you say disrespecting, would, he asked, would that be disrespecting his holiness? I think it helps to make sure that you clarify that the holiness you're referencing is otherness. Jesus Christ is completely other because he's yeah. righteous, and we live in a, an extremely unrighteous world filled with sin. So it, 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 you want to carry it in a way that demonstrates his otherness. He's morally or righteous, completely righteous, morally perfect or completely righteous. That's what sets him apart. Okay, as in, in his actions. Obviously, we know that he, he's set apart because he is God. Um, in fact, he's God's son. All right, so let's take a look at uh, structure and outline. Pro, the prologue in 1, 1 through 18. The word is God's powerful expression in creation, revelation, and redemption. But we have to also see, this is me adding to what the author was getting at, but he never explicitly said, uh, was that, I, would, I say this, I would more uh, specifically add that this self-expression, he refers to the word as, as God's power, uh, self-expression. It, um, it needs to be understood that this is the second person of the Trinity. When you talk about the word of God being a person, it's the second person of the Trinity. You want to make sure you get that clear. John does that in his, in his uh, book. All right, let's move some of the, the book of signs. Uh, in, as this next section from uh, chapter 1, verse 19, to, all the way to chapter 12, verse 50. This section gets its name from the fact that Jesus performs seven miracles in 12 chapters. Unlike the synoptics, these were designed not to display God's power. Um, so they were demonstrating that he was the son of God or he was the messenger of God because of, look, look, you, you can't do this, human beings. Only God could do this through whoever he chooses. And particularly, this is Jesus doing it, and therefore he's the son of God. It wasn't just that, although they did, but were prophetic, sim, uh, prophetic symbolic acts designed to, and this is what we're talking about, this validates Jesus as the Messiah and the son of God. So it's not like 
God will allow the, the, the disciples and the apostles to uh, demonstrate miracles, to demonstrate the validity that, they, hey, these are my messengers. Listen to them. It's more than that when Jesus, it's Jesus actually performing them. It's not God performing it through like he does with the, the, the disciples. This is Jesus as in God performing these miracles. And when I say as in, he is God, demonstrating he is both God and man. Okay, let's take a look at these miracles. It's just interesting. It's key that there's seven. Seven is the picture of perfection in Hebrew numerology. It's often referred to as God's number. When you see seven, you should be thinking, how does this relate to God? It's interesting that John puts it and makes it, he only records seven of Jesus' miracles. What is he trying to do with that? He could have done eight. He could have done a whole lot more than eight. But he does seven so that the Jews who understand numerology would catch. This is focusing on more than just Jesus being the, the human messenger. He is God. So then, it, and it lists the, the miracles, water into wine, healing of the nobleman, nobleman, a Gentile son, healing the crippled man, feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. All right, let's continue on. We move into the book of Passion. That, uh, that section starts in uh, ver excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1, and runs through uh, chapter 20, verse 31. This section fo focuses largely on Christ's final week and the extended teachings that surround it. And all the Gospels have a, a particular focus on that uh, week, oftentimes referred to as Passion Week. The, uh, then you end up with the epilogue, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 25, the epilogue ends, uh, whereas a, uh, I forget the name of it, the prologue, they go pro or before, it summarizes what's going to take place. The epilogue is the ending. How do we end this? What, do we, we, what are our final words, final thoughts? Sometimes it's a recap of it. The epilogue ends with the beloved disciple, so that's John himself, correcting a misconception about himself by the contemporary Christian community so as not to allow error to sleep into the uh, sleep. Uh, yeah, if you're not listening, it's, it's sleeping into the church. Uh, error to seep into the church. So let's read, Jane, I think this is you. John, let's, chapter 21, verses 18 to 23. What is this interaction that we hear taking place? What is it that John is trying to communicate in this section as he's closing the book? Go, go ahead and read 18 to 23. Or, yeah. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. All right, hold on real quick. This is Jesus talking to Peter. And he's going to explain in a second. He's going to die. And so you're going to see Peter go, well, what about that one? He just told me I'm going to die. John's part of the inner circle. Is he going to die? Isn't that, isn't that interesting, the fleshly nature? I got to die? Is he going to die? I mean, you just see the, the weakness. We, we as Christians, even the disciples, are made of clay feet. We have our own weaknesses. I don't want to die alone. Is he going to die with me? Is he going to die at the same time? Is he going to die at all? So keep reading. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, 
Lord, what about this man? <laughs> Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now listen to that. Keep, keep reading here. Watch how it, this gets misunderstood by the culture. They interpret what he said wrongly. So, and we're going to see John deal with that. Go ahead. So the saying spread, among, spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So John, in the very end here, is making sure that the Christian community doesn't blow it here and think, hey, folks, if I die, it doesn't mean that Christ is somehow not Christ. Christ didn't say I wouldn't die. He said, Peter, focus on what I'm dealing with with you. What is it to you whether or not he dies or when he dies or any of those issues concerning his death? And they misinterpreted, oh, John's not going to die until Jesus comes again. No, because when that doesn't happen, you're going to think less of Jesus. So John wants to make sure that you don't miss this and get a wrong understanding of Jesus. So when we get to 1 John, when John is writing to the people later on, the, 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 to the different churches out there, he writes in uh, dealing with, in 1 John 4, 1 through 2, He's dealing with a new error. You heard what they're saying. They messed up. There's a new error. There are people saying that Jesus didn't really have a body. Jesus really came as, in, in a, as a spirit. And so he really didn't have to die on a cross. That was just a misunderstanding. That was called uh, docetism. And, and so John is going to deal with it by, you'll see in John, he keeps talking about, oh, if someone comes and talks about Jesus and they don't see Jesus as coming, and the, 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 the phraseology is in the flesh. Why does John just keep saying in the flesh? Because he's knocking down the error that's trying to seep in by these other people saying, no, Jesus didn't come in a real body. Because bodies to them were, meant evil and spirit was good. So if he was the son of God, then that means he must not have had a real body because I'm going to build my whole theology on thinking that the body is evil. See how that gets all messed up and turned around? So John's correcting that. So we see on the end of John, the last chapter of John, John correcting this misunderstanding about him, and now he's going to correct, hey, don't, don't view Jesus wrongly that way. He, would, he took on flesh. He came in the flesh. It had to be a human being that would die a sacrificial death for a human being. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human when he took on flesh. So we have to see that. Uh, that way. So John's trying to make sure of that. All right, let's go through the message and theology. Uh, Christ is the one and only God, or the Christology of this. And you can see at the very bottom here, under there's a point two and three. We're not going into that. And be frank with you, I'm going to open it up in just a couple of minutes. We may not read all the way through this one. But let's take a look at what John gives us, at least as, as it relates to the theology of Christology, as Christ as God. First John affirms that Jesus, Christ, Jesus is the creator of the world. Take a look at John 1, 1 through 4. Who's reading that one? Who, does anyone, did anyone volunteer for that? My bad. Uh, oh, yeah, there you are. Wayne, sorry about that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
Amen. I, I love John because he tells it to me straight. I don't like to get sideways. I don't like to get confused. I don't like to get misunderstand. I certainly never from this pulpit want to share something in error with you guys and implant error in your minds. I grew up with 23 years of error. I want to get all the error out of my understanding of, of religion, and I want to make sure that no one else gets it from me. John lays it out. So I'll ask you the question, who is the creator? Which person of the Trinity? Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? And the answer is? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Very good. All of them. And John is now covering the area of Christ, saying he also, they all, the, the Godhead is involved in creation. The, we, we see it's, it's God the Father's plan. We see the Holy Spirit there hovering over uh, the darkness. The, hover, the, the Spirit is waiting to take action. And now we learn that Christ, the Word, is present. All persons of the Trinity are involved in the, cre the creation of this world. So we see and we understand that, oh, Jesus is, if he's involved in creation, that makes him the creator. So he's nothing less than the Father. And that's critical to, to our understanding of who Christ is or Christology. He is the complete essence. All persons of the Trinity are God in complete perfection and essence. So let's go on to the next one. First uh, John affirms that Jesus is the creator of the world, and then we continue on. Moreover, the description from John 20, 22. Now read John 20, 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. All right, what's going on there? Let's, let me continue and read what uh, our theologian has to say about this. In which Jesus, that, so we know Jesus breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on there? In which Jesus breathed new life. Is it physical life? No, they're standing in front of them. What is this new life? Let's look at this. Into the disciples through a symbolic giving of the Spirit. They're going to get it in its totality, in its, in its essence, if you will, at Pentecost. What we have here is a symbolic reference to what will occur at Pentecost. There's a vivid echo of Genesis 2-7. So what Jesus is doing, where God initially breathed life into Adam. So we see in Genesis 2-7, God breathes life into him, and he's given physical life. Now we see Jesus breathing on his disciples, and it's symbolically portraying that Jesus is the one that gives life. What person of the Trinity does he do it through? The Holy Spirit, and we see that at Pentecost, where, where the Spirit now indwells. Jesus says, I must go so that, so that the, the Spirit can come. And this is what the Spirit's role is, to now tabernacle with us. The temple of God, it dwells in us because the person. We learn that Jesus is the person of God. And so where Jesus is, the presence of God is. And yet Jesus says, I got to go, but I'm going to give you the, the spirit. You're going to have my presence with you. We are constantly tabernacling with God because the Holy Spirit now indwells us. Wow, the temple is in a place it's not just Jesus. Jesus sends his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, to indwell those of us who have professed Christ as Lord and Savior. So you can see the, 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 the beautiful picture that John is trying to lay out here by making it, by, by taking these in the place, taking on this issue in the manner he takes it on in this book. I'm going to explain why that's going to be significant. Listen, let's continue to read. Thus, John 1, 1 through 4, and John 20, 22 form a creation-themed, and I didn't catch that my uh, automated corrector on my, in my word changed that. That should actually say inclusio, not inclusion. 
Um, an inclusio is what authors will use in ancient Near East, um, as well as today we see it, where they'll put a point at the beginning, and they'll put a point somewhere else, and you see that, oh, these two points are dealing with the same issue. And so they're trying to say that from here all the way through here, I'm dealing with this overarching theme, this overarching theology. Well, the theme is life. Jesus Christ is the creator of the physical life. He is the giver of, or you can say creator if you want, the, the giver of eternal life because he is the one that secured that for us by dying on a cross and making it possible that we could be reconciled back to the Father. So you sit there and you go, oh, John, I love that your, your, your gospel isn't synoptic. Your gospel is one that's based on themes of theology, and I can see what you're doing here. You want to make sure that we understand this concept of temple and presence and what it means as far as life, not just physical life, but spiritual life, eternal life. So let's, the rest of that, we'll, I'll leave there. I will tell you, take a look at the, the seven I am's there listed there. I am the bread of life, the, the light of the world, the gate to the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true vine. Why seven? What is it pointing to when he uses seven? I am's. What's our indicator? What is seven should tell us? And when we see a number seven in the, in the Bible, so what is it? Perfection. And it ha means it has, he's trying to tell you something about God. So not only does he say, I am, I am in the Old Testament, uh, Exodus chapter three means, I am who am, Yahweh, his Old Testament name was I am. So when Jesus invokes that in the Greek, the Jews would either be offended or they would be like, wow, this is who that was. In the Old Testament, during the, the deliverance out of, out of Egypt, that was the deliverer. This is the same deliverer. That's the second person of the Trinity. But in addition to that, to that he uses the number seven, John does, to lay out, and I'll say that uh, through, through the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to show that, look, this isn't just somebody saying, I am. This is somebody who is, I'm giving it to you from another angle, which is dealing with the numerology that you should catch, that this is a God thing. All right, any questions? Hopefully, some of you guys got a little fascinated by this, and you're like, oh, I want to read, God, I want to read John differently. Read it not as a book that goes from A to B. There, certainly, there are some chronological points. Most of it's chronological. But within the chronology, he's taking on themes that are going to jump you out of uh, the totality of the chronology. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you give us your word in, in different formats, in different ways to hopefully reach us in your perfect timing, to enlighten us, to share with us, to, to give us the joy that comes from comprehending these truths, and to use that as encouragement in our walk, to grow in our understanding of you as God. You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are the only one true living God, and all else is false that claims to be, to, to be so. We thank you that we can clearly see this in your word. Please help us this day as we now move into our time of worship that we could listen carefully to Pastor Pete's preaching and learn what you want us to know this very day. In Christ's name we pray, amen.